This is episode five of Venture Roast, Making Venture Great Again. As you all know, this is originally a podcast that was supposed to make fun of tech and venture, but has pivoted to you know how to make venture tech and Silicon Valley better. And on this week, we have a dear friend of mine in Prashant Fonseca from Tuesday Capital. Prashant, I'll let you introduce yourself and uh, we'll rock and roll from there. Thank you for having me. I am recording here from Austin, Texas. I uh, have been working as an investor at Tuesday, which used to be called Crunch Fund, since being an intern in the summer of 2013. So it's it's been a minute now by, uh, by the standards of young VCs. I um, have been in the business for a pretty long time. I got my start as a high school entrepreneur and a, a kid who was obsessed with open source router firmware and uh, finding ways to hack the internet to make money. I uh, went from that to building a modestly successful business while I was in high school and uh, being a burnt out entrepreneur at the moment that I started college at the age of 17. So uh, managed to back a lot into those uh, those first years of entrepreneurship. Never thought that I would become a VC. I thought maybe that I would become an entrepreneur again after a few years of relaxing and having fun, AKA going to college. And uh, I got recruited to be an investor. I thought that I would do it for a summer at first, and then I thought I'd just continue it part-time for a little bit longer. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was moving to San Francisco and uh, doing it full-time. And uh, now it's been five years, and I've gotten to invest across three of our funds and make a lot of cool investments. So that is uh, the quick rundown of of me and uh, how I got here. And you're now a partner at Tuesday, right? So you made it all the way through. Yeah. Intern, analyst, associate, principal, partner. So in eight years, you made it across the entire spectrum, which for most firms is pretty average, I think, right? You know, eight to 10 years to the journey, if this is your life. And so congratulations on your recent promotion and the announcement of Tuesday's new fund in partnership with Frog. You know, really excited for you and Pat. It's uh, couldn't happen to nicer people. What are you guys looking at nowadays? You know, we are always looking at everything. I think uh, in our early days, we were a little bit skewed towards consumer companies. And the trend in the industry, which we have largely mirrored in our portfolio for the last few years, has been more of a skew towards enterprise. You know, it's been a slow five or six years, being completely honest, for consumer companies. It used to be that we were investing in consumer apps. And what has been popular in consumer for the last few years have been the direct-to-consumer CPG-type companies. We have invested in a handful of those, but we've tried to be extremely cautious about making those investments because it's just harder to get venture returns when you invest in those types of businesses. You know, We are much more sensitive about the business traction and the valuation of the time that we're investing for those companies, and it's just ended up that we've done fewer. But we've invested in a lot of security, infrastructure. I've always been a fan of making frontier technology investments. We have... Three, sorry, no, actually, yeah, we have four satellite investments. Uh, one of my first investments was a self-driving car company that got sold later. I've been doing augmented reality stuff, and I took a couple of years off that, but I just uh, doing another one right, right this week. You know, it's so funny. Did you guys invest in one of those D2C plant companies? Because that's a running joke that I have around the D2C plant companies. We did invest in a D2C plant company. It's <laughs> which, which one are you in? We are investors in this still. Oh, that's a good one. I get their advertisements. And when I still live in San Francisco, I used to get their direct mail to buy plants. When I was interviewing at funds, the question that 
I kept getting asked was, do you feel like you missed a lot of trends in venture? And I, you know, the example I always go back to is that there's always quarterly trends that seem to be hot. And one of those was DC plant companies. And I always say like, you know, did I really miss that much by not, by not jumping in on the DTC plant trend? You missed the best, the best quarter ever. I know I missed, I missed the quarter to be in venture, the DTC plant trend. So I, I think that's funny, but that's awesome. And as you know, like when you were starting on venture in 2013, 14, 15, I was the lead mechanical engineer at Scully, which was the uh, consumer augmented reality motorcycle helmet company. So live that pain right alongside you in the rise of consumer hardware companies when you guys were investing in that and totally understand why you backed out of augmented reality because that space is still garbage for better, for worse. And so I'm glad that you found a new thread to pull there because it needs to exist to get us off our smartphones. Can you talk about your partnership with Frog a little bit? I'd love to know more about that. I remember talking to one of the MDs there when they had just announced they were going to do a, they were doing their own venture fund. Seems like they pivoted a bit to be working with you guys, which is, you know, good for them. That was an awesome decision, but can you talk about how you guys work together a little bit? I'm sure there are people that want to know. Absolutely. Uh, so for folks who don't know, Frog is one of the world's preeminent design firms. Their history is doing design broadly, industrial design today to do you know, just about everything related to design. One of our former portfolio founders, uh, actually, we just invested in his company, in his newest company. So we, he is a portfolio founder again, had a relationship with Frog. He had worked with them for one of his companies and he had introduced my partner Pat to them. And they had started under their own initiative, this program to work with startup companies. Their employees really wanted to be a part of more innovative newer companies, you know, a lot of their customers are very large organizations and large organizations are great because they have big budgets and they're motivated to constantly, uh, you know, reinvent themselves, but they're obviously not as, as nimble and agile and they don't move as fast as startups, right? There's something fun about, about working with startups and you can work on crazier projects. So they, by their own volition, started working with startups, but they, you know, they, as a design firm, were not equipped to evaluate companies and think about taking venture risk, right? They weren't really in the business of investing in startups. They wanted to work with startups so that they weren't in the business of investing in them, right? And taking balance sheet risk. So we had just talked to them about this. I think Pat had had a casual conversation. And at some point the idea came up, we were like, well, Frog's design services are incredibly valuable to companies. And, but what companies really need, if they're going to be working with someone like Frog is they need to be able to get services in exchange for equity. Right. The reality is that for an early stage company, it's really hard to come up with, you know, I mean, and Frog very, very heavily discounts their services that they're doing for our portfolio companies. But even with any level of discount, right, even if a heavily discounted job might be a hundred thousand dollars, it's still a lot of money for an early stage company. So the reality was if Frog was going to work with these companies, they had to find a way to uh, do their work in exchange for equity. And of course, we are in the business of, you know, taking risk and giving companies money at an early stage to help them build and help them grow. So we struck a partnership with Frog where we would send them deals that we were looking at where we thought that Frog could be a good partner. They would bring us companies that were coming and talking to them and that they would potentially wanted to engage with them and let those companies pitch us. And if we like those companies and if Frog likes the companies, then we could make an investment that would go towards Frog services and we would get equity in the company. Frog would provide services and the company would get the benefit of those services and potentially some additional cash from us as well. So 
that has been working really well. We've done a lot of awesome jobs. You know, we've brought some companies to Frog that they would have never seen. And, you know, they have brought some companies to us that we would have never seen otherwise as well. Right. They provide, you know, they, they just have a very different funnel of companies than, than VCs do. And more often than we might have thought, those companies are companies that VCs should have been seeing. And we're fortunate that we have been seeing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when, when I was still an engineer, we were working with Flextronics, which tried to do their own venture arm and then ended up having to spin out a venture arm that was disassociated with, with Flex so that they could actually see a similar relationship. I don't know what's happened to that sense, but that's awesome that that's coming back. I think that it's needed and, you know, the services and discovering like the talent pool to actually help manifest some of these companies critical. I mean, I know that we could have used that on the insurance side when we were building our stuff for this new thing. You mentioned that your thesis has changed a lot over the last eight years as a fund. How do you define your theses and how do you build them internally to know what to focus on so you guys don't get distracted or are you okay with getting distracted and how do you guys decide where you're going to spend your time? I don't think our thesis has ever changed. I think our thesis has always been the same and that we've never really had a thesis. I don't know that okay. that would be, but I would say that I have explicitly for the last four years, at least answered the question of what is your thesis with my thesis is that I'm an anti, I'm an anti thesis. My, my thesis is I have no thesis. And the reason for that is simple. If I knew what was going to be the next big thing as a former entrepreneur and as a builder and as an, you know, very bad, but engineer myself, like I would go build it, I, which is what I always say. And I, and I mean it, it's true, right? I don't know what the next big thing is going to be. I think we're all, I mean, look, I can tell you what I think is going to happen in the world. And that, you know, is helps to, that is how I view every company that comes and pitches me, right? Like it's through my lens and my worldview and what I think is going to happen. Right. I, I think there's going to be or more automation. I think I have a viewpoint on augmented reality, but I can't sit here and tell you, I think that these are the companies that are going to be big. Like, look, everyone has a thesis around remote work right now. Is that a thesis or is it an observation? Right. I think, it's I think, I think that that's last quarter's trend. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. Nobody had to be smart to figure out that remote or that we should be investing in remote work after COVID. Yeah. Now I was, yeah, you don't have to, that it does not require <laughs> very deep analysis, although it's funny, you know, I mean, I, I see people will put a lot of work into some of these PowerPoints and presentations and these really, really long medium posts and I'll read them and I'll go like, I appreciate that you were so thoughtful about that, but that, I did not find that very illuminating and it's hard for me to imagine that <laughs> I would have, right? I mean, look, what I do find illuminating is when people go and do deep research into spaces that nobody's really thinking about, right? right. And it's, it's awesome for the folks who do have a thesis in one of those spaces, but as a generalist fund, right, where we are looking to make 12 to 15 investments per year, right, which we between two people, which is a, which is a ton. That's, that's a, that's a lot of, yeah, it it is a, it is more than average. It's pretty awesome. I mean, all good on you guys. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I meant that's a lot of checks for per person, my average per fund, which is great. Again, you know, what we do, we, we are not taking a board seat. We are not the lead investor. We are experts in PR and media positioning and uh, frankly, like storytelling, right? When it comes to fundraising. The, the thing that I know more about than anything now after so many years in venture fundraising is, unsurprisingly, fundraising, right? So I can help companies raise and we institutionally help companies with everything else related to leveraging PR and journalism. You know, that, that comes from our, our legacy and our, our former ties to the, the sphere of TechCrunch. We never had any formal connection to TechCrunch when we were Crunch Fund, but we were, 
you know, we, we came from that world. Our, our, one of our co-founders came from that world as well. So different times. Yeah. So, you know, there's two topics that we've covered so far. Your journey to becoming a partner at Tuesday, now in a second fund, and your approach to building thesis, which is trying to build a worldview in real time as things are happening and, and you know, take each meeting as its own opportunity to be its, be the future. And something, you know, that comes up a lot in venture is that the job has very little structure. And as a result of that, has very it's it's very difficult to what I call navigate the gray in the job. And you seem to be doing a masterful masterful job at that. Do you have any insights for for people coming up in the industry or people who want to get into the industry, whether it be entrepreneurship or venture, for either how you navigated the gray or how you stay sane navigating the gray? Sure. So I think, you know, the first thing that I would say is that, or to relay some, something that someone told me, I honestly can't remember who very, very early on in my venture career was that, you know, venture can be an incredibly easy job on a day-to-day basis. It it really can, right? That's not to say that a lot of VCs don't work incredibly hard. Many VCs work incredibly hard, but VC can be an incredibly easy job on a day-to-day basis. You take some number of meetings between zero and having calls and meetings all day, right? You have a lot of discretion at, at most firms, even for the most junior people, quite a lot of discretion in terms of how you spend your time and what you do, but it is a very hard job in the long term, right? So it can be really, you can have a blast for three, six months, or you can do that for a few years and you can realize you never made a single good investment and find yourself being, uh, being let out the door pretty easily. And then sometimes that catches people by surprise, but there is an expectation after a certain amount of time that, you know, you deliver, Right. I think another thing that somebody told me uh, a little bit later in my venture career that also, you know, resonated at the time and really stuck out of my memory and has proved true over time is that it really all comes down to making good investments and those investments are doing well in the long term, right? Nothing else really matters. I think a lot of younger VCs will get really caught up in the marketing and, and branding themselves and there's, there's certainly, there can be a lot of value in brand, but I think you need to know when that's real value and when it's, or there's a lot of noise, right? I think being on lists and being in the news all the time does not make you a good investor. If that is a, (laughs) that is the means by which you are attracting deal flow or closing deals, then it might be helpful. But just like, you know, the the same counsel that I give people, the founders that we work with when they're thinking about PR and media, I'm like, the reason for doing PR and media should not just be your own vanity, right? There should be a purpose, right? There are times where it's great to have everybody know about you and hear about your mission and what you're doing. There are other times where it really just doesn't benefit you at all. And I think it's really easy as a young investor to get caught up much more into the optics of what you're doing and, and forget that what really matters are your results. Great points. It kind of leads into a very easy next question, which is how do you get most of your deal flow today? The vast majority of my deal flow is coming from people today that I've had a long standing relationship with. Those are mostly founders, oftentimes founders that we have backed previously. Many of them have now exited. Some of them are still running their companies and, uh, you know, other investors who I've just developed a very close, you know, friendship and relationship with. And so the, the media thing is kind of like a double-edged sword where it's like, how do you develop those networks? There's always multiple strategies. There's like the media outward facing thing. And then there's like the developing the human relationships thing. 
we we've both chosen the the latter strategy of just like be a real person to develop these networks and that seems to be working out super well for you guys and I'm ha- I'm happy for that. You mentioned that you're calling from Austin. Congratulations on escaping SF. We're both escapees. You escaped early. You moved to New York a couple of years ago from SF and now with COVID nobody really needs to be anywhere anymore. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the state of future of work if you want to share them and why we don't need Silicon Valley anymore if you want to go there or however you want to frame that. Sure. Well, look, San Francisco is a place that you love, you hate, or you tolerate. And I'm very happy for the people who love it, who feel like it is the one place for them. You know, I remember talking to somebody that I knew decently well who I'd run into at a conference in Hawaii about maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And he was relaying his story. You know, he grew up in a small town. He went to MIT. And not long after college, he found himself in San Francisco. And I remember him telling me the story about the first time he got to San Francisco, where he was like, you know, I just looked up at the billboards on the highway. And I just saw all these, th- like, you know, things, the databases and computer science things. And I just, I like, I was in heaven, right? And I'm like, that's awesome. I'm very happy for you. I'm glad you love San Francisco. And that's awesome. Not everyone there is like that. I think anyone who's ever lived in San Francisco knows that San Francisco is, it, it's kind of sad in that it's a place where a lot of people definitely are there because they feel like they have to be there and they feel like they have no other choice and not because it's a place that they, yeah. And it was definitely, uh, you know, I, I thought that it was a very valuable place for me to live and the network is, it was amazing and there's some amazing people, but it just wasn't the city that I wanted to be in. You know, also we, we, you know, we talk a lot about equity and access to venture financing and like, how do you become an entrepreneur? Why does, why is it that entrepreneurs don't seem to be very diverse and venture capitalists seem to be very diverse? And it's like, well, you know, the barrier to entry to getting into San Francisco is just so incredibly high. It's so expensive, right? It is just to even be there geographically is, is tough. You have to make so many trade-offs. I mean, I'm, you know, when I first took my, uh, when I took my first full-time role at Tuesday, I had to take a massive, massive pay cut. I think I could have maybe just barely afforded to have my own bedroom sharing, you know, an apartment with a bunch of other people, but my money was pretty tight. So I literally shared a bedroom as a VC when I first moved there. And like, that was what I could afford. You know, fortunately after about nine months, I was able to get my own room, my own bedroom. But, you know, I went from like a pretty nice apartment in Los Angeles, working a good job that paid pretty well to going like, Hey, I think the future is in the tech business. I need to learn, I need to learn more about it. And, and, you know, I mean, and my story is a, is a story of extreme fortune and luck, you know, and access, right? The fact that I had folks who recruited me into a venture role uh, made me phenomenally lucky, right? You know, you want the tech industry to be a place where people can show up with their talents and with their creativity and with their energy and, you know, be able to build, right? And, and when San Francisco was the place to do that and people could not even afford to be in that city, that just wasn't going to happen. So I think what's happening now, which is interesting, is a lot of those people who don't necessarily want to be in San Francisco, you know, for a number of reasons, right? I think there are people who wouldn't want to be there regardless of the price point. But I think when you add how crazy expensive it is, and you add the fact that a lot of people never really wanted to be there, there's a lot of people who are who are eager to go elsewhere for whatever reason, right? Everyone has different priorities. Some people want a nice place to raise their family. Some people just want to be able to, you know, some people want different cultural values. Some people want more of a real city. Some people want nicer weather, right? There's there's all kinds of different reasons. But now what's happening, finally, after so many years of people trying, is like, you know, come to 
come to Austin, come to LA, even come to New York, right? I mean, even being in New York for that, it wasn't quite two years. I, I didn't even make it a, I basically was in New York for a few, you know, short months since that I was hoping would turn into a full-time life there, but it just, you know, life, life didn't turn out that way. I, I'm very fond of New York City and it will always have a, a big place in my heart. But even in New York, you know, when I was there, it was like, you know, you just felt like you were the underdog massively, right? You're like, oh man, trying to recruit the best people to come to New York, New York City. When New York City feels like an underdog place for anything, you know that something is wrong with the way that the tech industry set up. Yeah, all the above. I mean, I mean, even your background, I mean, I, we know each other very well, but even your background before you got out to Los Angeles for college, I mean, you've just always pushed yourself to be the best version of who you can be. And I've always admired that. You know, you know, you mentioned you tried to set up a life in New York that hits home. But as you know, I was trying to do the same thing. And, you know, the thing about SF is that there is this real barrier to access and I was that bushy-eyed person that you described when I first got there. And it's very difficult to, to be successful there. So one topic that we've covered a lot, you and I, in many of our personal conversations outside of this is the future of venture. You know, you worry about a, a world where in 10 years from now, venture doesn't exist anymore because just the world has changed so much and kind of people are left holding the bag. Are you comfortable talking about what your future, what you perceive the future of venture to be? and how we adapt into this new, you know, venture 3.0. Yeah, so a lot of my view of how venture is changing or at least the the vector in which I see it changing will tie back to what I was just talking about with. So I think obviously the shift towards every company moving to remote work made every company that exists realize that remote work was possible. I think, you know, there are some companies that have found that to be very difficult. The majority of companies at least that I've spoken to have found it to be it was tough at first to adapt, but most have found that the productivity is the same, if not actually higher, right? Again, it's, it is different, but you can run a company with a remote workforce. That is an incredible learning. Not only can you do it, every company, because they had to, was forced to learn how to do that. And all of a sudden that has meant that teams are now distributed a lot. And some of them will go back to the way they were before. And many of them are going to be permanently distributed right? Or permanently, you know, going to the office is optional and permanently you can live wherever you want. So I, I think this is going to meaningfully catalyze this thesis that people have had for a long time about, you know, we're not just going to be investing in the big cities and, you know, we're not going to be investing just in the people who went to that, who were in that one fraternity at Stanford, right? We're, we're now we're going to be investing in people from all over because they're going to be entrepreneurs from all over. I think once you no longer have to be a part of this pretty narrow Bay Area ecosystem, and when people who have the talents and the learnings from there start to spread into other ecosystems, you know, be it here in Austin or places like Las Vegas, right? There's a lot of up and coming tech communities, Los Angeles, Miami, uh, you know, and then they share that knowledge with the people who are there, who are also motivated and talented. I think you're going to find that VCs are really going to have to start investing in founders from other places now, right? I think that's just, I think a lot of the best companies, the, the, the sad reality is that the vast majority of the best companies and the biggest outcomes, right? Again, even compared to New York, were coming out of the Bay Area for a long time. And it's true that there have been outcomes coming from smaller places, but as a, as a, as a fund manager working on a strategy, right? Most have to begrudgingly admit whether they like it or not, right? The Bay Area was the place where 
you're going to have the best luck of, of finding the big ones. And now I genuinely think you're going to see that the next big companies are going to be coming from not those places or not that place, I should say. And that is going to completely change the way that this business works. It really is, right? Because it used to be that a perfectly acceptable venture strategy was basically hang out in South Park. Like if the company doesn't mm-hmm. put you in South Park in San Francisco, you know, that's fine. And that's just not going to work anymore. It's not. I really think it won't. I think this really changes that. You're going to have to go all around this country for sure. And I think you're going to have to go beyond this country as well. The, the first step is you're going to have founders everywhere. That ultimately leads into more diversity in venture and tech as a result of people just not being in the bubble of the, what's it called? Like there's the, the trope is there's 46 miles of Bay area surrounded by reality. Is that the line? I haven't heard that, but I, uh, that sounds about, sounds about right. Yeah. There was like a Bloomberg article a couple of days ago that was just basically said venture capital is not really designed to invest in really hard problems. You know, maybe forcing it, maybe forcing us all to get out of the Bay area will actually help venture capitalists realize that there are problems beyond their immediate purview in that really deep bubble. So most people don't know this about you. So I'm going to just openly uh, call it out here, but you're one of the most creative people I know. In addition to being a venture capitalist and entrepreneur, you're also a DJ, a prolific writer, a pilot, a motorsports enthusiast in both car racing and motorcycle racing. And most importantly, a tuk-tuk rally driver. <laughs> so uh, just to asterisk that last, Prashant and I raced a tuk-tuk or auto rickshaw, to be culturally sensitive, the entire length of India for charity in August of 2019 with our other dear friend, Sebastian Park. And um, Prashant has one of the most eclectic, fun, extracurricular activities around. Maybe you can speak to some of that for how you stay sane in this job. Oh, man. Well, I don't know if that list that you rattle off makes me sound... I don't know how it makes me sound. It might just make it me makes sound you sound like, like Tom Cruise's body double. Or just a crazy person uh, with a short attention span. Well... So basically all venture capitalists. It is more common amongst both venture capitalists and entrepreneurs to have crazy hobbies. I think uh, this is an, an industry that attracts people who are um, experience-seeking, frankly, and I very obviously from my list of hobbies, I, I am an experience seeking person. I, I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking for new things. I'm looking for new experiences. I'm always looking to learn new, new skills. And again, that entrepreneurs are that way too. That's how they're able to create and build new things. Right. And, and having an orientation towards just wanting to do right. It, you have to be biased towards action, right. In addition to just having the, the interest in, in a lot of things. So yeah, it's having the hobbies has been really great particularly during the COVID times, because, you know, like I can go drive my car and ride motorcycles. And there's a, there's a lot of those things that I can do that don't involve, uh, I don't even have to worry about social distancing because they are solo, completely safe activities. And uh, that has been nice. I think I've had a lot of extra time, you know, going from being in, in New York City a lot or most of the time to, and, you know, having social engagements all the time, having coffees and drinks, work and non-work to basically having just been by myself in Maryland for, you know, at my parents' house for a few months, right? I, it was awesome. I was like, cool, I'm going to make some music. I'm going to produce some songs. I'm going to finally 
learn music theory, which I learned and it was really incredible. I was like, wow, music is math. It's very mathematical. It makes sense, right? Once you understand it, everything kind of clicked. And I was like, aha, uh-huh. like I see the patterns in, in like I, I understand, have a new level of understanding of how music works, which is, which was cool. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's been good in this time. I think, I don't know if it keeps me sane or if that's what I need to do to keep myself sane, but it's fun. You know, it's interesting about music theory. One of my best friends from high school ended up studying theoretical math at Princeton, like in the same program that John Nash was in. Mm -hmm. And his first love was music theory. And so, so all of the smartest people I know, their curiosity for math and hard problems ended up starting in music theory. So it's a fun rabbit hole to dig down for how you perceive the world and how you think through logic, logic and problem solving, et cetera. So it's a good place to spend your time. So to bring it back to tech and venture and et cetera, does any of this change how you think about what you're going to be investing in moving forward or change how you want to make investments or change your, how you perceive future theses, et cetera, or, or still rocking and rolling? I think, uh, you know, the only major point, the one that I, I, I already made a little bit is, uh, you know, I think a team can be anywhere and I think the, a team can be distributed. And, and I think that that's a great thing. It means that in terms of looking for companies, I think I, I'm going to be actively making a point to be in different geographies. You know, everything is virtual for the time being. I think at some point people will resume in-person meetings, but I think also as a VC, we're all being forced to think about Right. They're the people that really feel like they need to meet someone in person to, to close a deal, and you know, quote unquote, handshake. And uh, I'm certainly thinking about how, how, you know, how can you get comfortable making an investment without that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's everyone's big thing, right? Is like you really need to, especially at the stage that you guys invest in, is really being able to trust the person sitting across from you. It's I don't we're having that problem now as we go out to fundraise again for for how to establish that trust. The last question that I have for you kind of around tech and venture is, you know, given all the state of the world right now and kind of what's top of mind, is there any problem that you really hope a venture company tries to go out and solve? I think um, my fear about a few different forms of media, and I see this more in social media and the news media uh, than explicitly in the entertainment media, a broader entertainment media, but I think, you know, it's pretty clear that both the news media and the tech platform companies, you know, their, their incentive is, is to make a profit and the profit maximizing way of being seems to be to, uh, you know, sow the seeds of, of discord and discontent and frankly, just to make people less, less happy, you know, to show thing people content. And, and, you know, there's a certain fairness in that you could say based on, well, that's just what people like and those are their preferences. And I, and I have a great deal of respect for that, but I would really like to see someone create an alternative, you know, not just dogmatically and idealistic or idealistically, but really create something that's better where the emphasis is on people being happier, right? And then both individuals and society, because I think I would argue that a lot of what's happening now is making both individuals and society, you know, certainly less happy. You know, again, some people argue that that's actually a good thing that you shouldn't, uh, you know, red pill, blue pill kind of argument that you should be in reality and that reality is dark, but I'm not as convinced that that's true. I, I would love to see an alternative to the way that people spend uh, their time and attention, right? And, and that's a 
long-winded way of saying, I think it's time for a, a new consumer product, a new product that captures people's attention. I think it could be social. I think it could be news. I think it could be something. Is Clubhouse it? Do, you know, something really new. Does Clubhouse solve that problem or do we need something? Is it, I'm not on Clubhouse. I haven't been on it. I haven't seen I'm, it. But... I'm not even convinced that Clubhouse is a real thing anymore because I'm not on <laughs> it. I've, I, people talk about it a lot. I've, I haven't had any reports or screenshots from someone who's on it. So as far as I'm concerned, it's not even a real thing. I think like if it is, it's at the point, I mean, certainly it's at the point where amongst VCs, everyone has heard about it. And that I guess that's a good strategy in terms of people have this desire now and if they get an invite to be on it. But after a certain point, I think it's like, well, if it were good, why wouldn't you just open it up and let it grow? Right. Or what is going on? So, um, that said, like everybody else, I will try it whenever I'm allowed to, I don't know. Like what what is on there? Are you on, you said you're not on there, but I'm not on there. I just see the screenshots from people and they're all obnoxious. What are the screenshots like? It's basically like 50, 50 GPs at tier one funds and celebrities just like yelling at each other. The uh, screenshot that I saw, that I think really is like an accurate summary from my perception of it is it's the deep cuts of tech Twitter. That doesn't, yeah, I'm going to say that's not what I'm thinking of. <laughs> right. And like, that doesn't sound very fun, right? That sounds, you know, maybe it will become that uh, what I want, what I'm hoping for eventually, but uh, it sounds like it's currently not there. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, good vibes, happiness, community, love, relationships. You know, it's funny. I'll tell you this. Right now in my car, I'm again, I'm in Austin, Texas. My car, it takes a, a moment for the Apple CarPlay to, to boot up. And before it does, I'm set to 101.1, which in the DC area where I drove from is a rock station, but here is a Christian radio station. And, you know, I was, my I like family was, is from Sri Lanka. They were Buddhist, you know, go to a Buddhist temple. Pretty, not super religious, but it you know, respect that cultural tradition. I grew up in a town that was predominantly Jewish and uh, knew a handful of Christians as well. I went to a Christian high school. So I've been exposed to a lot of different religious beliefs, but I will tell you, you know, I basically just hear gospel and, you know, pastors talking on the radio. Every time I start my car, I get like a minute or two. And sometimes I just keep it on and keep listening to it. And it's very illuminating. It's really thoughtful. Actually, a lot of it is very, you know, like messages of, of unity and hope and positivity and some of the most rational reasonable realistic like assessments of the world situation that i hear anywhere you know i mean you don't hear that on msnbc fox news or cnn that's for sure you know so I, i'm telling you you know regardless of whatever your religious viewpoint might be i think everyone might be happier if they just turned on some christian radio you know honestly that's a great unifying uh point across left and right right now getting yeah. where the state of the u.s is for sure that's really cool i really appreciate that it's pretty funny considering that you're tamil right by background well my, well, my family is Sinhala, so my family is Sinhala. Sinhala. Yeah, you know, Buddhist family, Jewish town, Christian school. I mean, I am, you know, really been exposed You're to the American life. dream. You're a melting pot. I Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Dude, that's awesome. Do you have any uh, final comments before we sign off today? It's been so great to hear your voice. I'm glad you're doing well. It's been a minute. Um, likewise. I know. I, I don't think I do. I... Uh, I, I think for those who are feeling down because of everything that's happening in the world, and I really mean everything, you know, there's a lot, lot of stuff that, you know, different people see different things, but I think that almost no one seems to be happy right now is that, you know, there will be, we'll come out on the other end, the pendulum swings all kinds of ways on all different things. 
this time that feels tough will make us appreciate the times that feel better. So, and, uh, you know, let's all look forward to that. Cool, man. Thanks, buddy. And uh, glad you're well and uh, stay safe in Austin and uh, send some barbecue when you have a chance. <laughs> you bet. All right. Take okay, care. buddy. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Venture Roast. We recorded this podcast with Prashanth on July 2nd, 2020. And big shout out to him and the Tuesday Capital team for taking the time to chat with us.